the day you were born, you were endowed with this enormous amount of knowledge, which was wealth. So, for example, all the animals had been domesticated thousands of years ago. You were born into the world in which there were cows and goats and, and sheep, and, and they had all been domesticated. You were born into a world in which Newton had already invented calculus, in which Euclid had already invented geometry, in which people had figured out how to navigate by the stars. That was just given to you, all that knowledge. That knowledge was transferred to you. Uh, across time because of our capacity for teaching and social learning. Hello there, wishing a very happy new year to you and your friends and family. Welcome to the first episode of Wise Words in 2020, the start of a new decade. Did you manage to attend the Wise Summit in November by any chance? We're so excited to be coming out of it brimming with all new content to share. If you haven't checked out the past few episodes, I do encourage you to listen to them as well. Jason Silva, Dimitri Christakis, and Larry Rosenstock. There's a lot of interesting conversations to digest there. Just before we get into the talk with Nicholas, we'd like to give a friendly reminder about the WISE Awards. If you or someone you know is running an innovative education project, the 2020 WISE Awards is accepting submissions until January 20th. Apply for a chance to gain global visibility and a prize of $20,000 for your project. That's January 20th, 2020. For further details, click on the first link in the description. Thanks for sticking with us so far if you've listened to the podcast last year, or if you're tuning in for the first time, let us know your thoughts afterwards. Without further ado, let's get started. So I'm here with Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you for, so much for having me. Uh, Nicholas, maybe we can start with a little bit of background, information about yourself and the work that you do. Well, it's hard to know where to begin with a question like that. Um, Go yeah, as I'm, far back as you, well, as you feel is necessary. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, uh, first of all, I'm hoarse today because I'm sick, but I, um, I'm a physician and a social scientist. When I went to medical school, In 1984, I thought I wanted to be a reconstructive surgeon. I wanted to reattach severed extremities. And through a series of serendipitous events, I changed careers and uh, decided I wanted to be a research scientist. And then again, through another series of serendipitous events, I decided I wanted to focus on social science, primarily because at that time in my life, I had become very interested in public health. Mm -hmm. Part of the move away from surgery and the move towards public health intersected with uh, sort of moral commitments I began to develop that saw it as important not only to take care of individual patients, yeah. but to try to take care of the population as a whole. Like rather than running around and putting my finger in dikes, taking care of one patient at a time, I thought it would be fantastic if I could make a contribution to change the way we are organized to improve the health of the public. And so I became interested in public health and then that led to an interest in social sciences. And so after medical school and I went to Harvard medical school, graduated in 1989, I got a degree in public health. Then I went to the university of Pennsylvania and got a PhD in sociology and, um, and then did my residency training in hospice medicine. So I took care of people who were dying was my clinical care. And then in 1995, finally, at the age of 33, I finished my education and I got my first real job. That's not true. I mean, as a resident, I had had a job, but um, as an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. And then I was at Chicago until 2001. And then I went to Harvard, uh, where I was a professor until 2013. And then I moved to Yale. And my career has been at the intersection of the natural and the social sciences. 
So I'm interested in how biological and social forces conspire to affect the health of populations. Yeah. And, and so you still have an interest in, in public health as, as a, yeah, I mean, so I'm interested in area of investigation. Yes. uh, But I would say that, um, I mean, I have interest in, in the public, uh, is what I would say. I mean, some of the things we do are focused on the health of the public, but we're also looking at other things, uh, economic well-being of populations. We've done, we're doing some work on, um, artificial intelligence. You know, we've done some work on what does it mean when we add forms of artificial intelligence into our midst? How does it affect the large scale behavior of human groups? So we're doing lots of research in my laboratory. We, we have, uh, uh, sociologists, economists, physicists, engineers, computer scientists, physical anthropologists, evolutionary biologists, physicians. I mean, we have a large group of people from many disciplines that are all tackling problems that relate to, that arise from how people interact with each other and solutions, developing solutions that exploit the fact that people interact with each other. Yeah. And then to a certain extent, your, your recent book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, is, is something of a sort of interdisciplinary tour de force. Well, thank you. That, that sort of brings all of that together and, and asks, you know, I think arguably one of the most, uh, fundamental of, of questions, which is how, how do you end up with, uh, with a good society? Do you, do you want to say a little bit? And I understand it took you nine, yes, nine years of, 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 well, of hard I mean, work to, well, it wasn't writing the book wasn't the only thing I was doing in yeah, those last nine years. Of course. Years. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I run a lab and I teach and I uh, yeah. have other duties. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, di- I didn't mean that as a. No, no, it know. took a long time, but it wasn't. No, I just want to say, yeah. no, no. But it's, it took a long time, but it's not as if I worked full time for nine years on the sure. book. Yeah. But, um, the book is a, makes an argument founded on evidence that human beings are innately pre-wired to make a good society. And it starts with the observation that for too long, in my view, both scientists and the people on the street have been overly focused on the dark side of human nature, our propensity to lie to each other or be tribal or selfish or cruel or violent. But equally, um, we have been, we have evolved to be good to manifest qualities of love and friendship and cooperation and teaching. And altruism. Yeah, and altruism. And we teach each other things. We do all these kind things for each other. And these qualities must necessarily have outweighed the bad qualities. Because if every time I came near you, you filled me with lies, you told me falsehoods about the environment, which, strictly speaking, would be bad for my Darwinian fitness, right? Like, to the extent I miss... I have a misimpression of my environment. That probably is not good. Or if you were mean to me or you killed me, I would be better off living apart from you. So we would have evolved to be solitary animals. We didn't because the benefits of a connected life outweigh the costs. So I I discuss how and why that came to be. I talk about these benefits. Uh, What are the benefits of living socially? Um, what, What good qualities do we manifest? Like I mentioned some of them earlier. Um, and, and the role that these qualities have played in our own evolution. And, and, and one, one of the things that you, you, uh, rightly focus on, I think, is, is this idea that, uh, unique amongst, uh, amongst the species that we're aware of, uh, humans are, uh, engaged in teaching and 
and learning on a on a on a on a mass scale. Yes. So this is very interesting. So one of the qualities that's seen universally in human cultures is this capacity for teaching. And it is universal in us, but very rare in other animals. So think about this for a moment. Most animals can learn. You know, you can, a little worm, you can teach a worm that if you shock it this way, it'll go the other way. Um, a little fish in the sea can learn that if it swims up to this light, it'll find food there. Some animals do something different. They learn socially. They learn from each other. So, for example, you put your hand in the fire. You learn that it's hot. You remove your hand. And so, you've, yeah, you've acquired some knowledge, but you've paid a price. You've burned your hand. Or I can watch you put your hand in the fire, and I gain almost as much knowledge. Fire burns, but I pay none of the price. That's incredibly efficient. So social learning... Um, is incredibly efficient and valuable. Um, you know, I can watch you eat a red berry and you die. That's amazing. I don't have to die. I don't have to eat a red berry. I just watch you do it and now I learn. So social learning is, is rare, but in the animal kingdom, but so unlike, um, individual learning, which is very common, but we do something that's even rarer. We teach each other things. I teach you to build a fire. I teach you not to put your hand in the fire. I teach you not to eat red berries. So um, this is very rare in the animal kingdom. We do it and a few other species do it. And actually teaching is a kind of altruism. It's a giving by one individual of knowledge to another individual. And this capacity for teaching that allows us, that's innate in us, that's universal in us, and that allows us to distribute knowledge across time and place so there's a lateral transfer. I learn things and I teach them to those around me and to my descendants and to all descendants of human beings. This is at the core of our capacity for culture, which ultimately is at the, at the root of all of our wealth. So <clears throat> if you think about it, you were born, the day you were born, you were endowed with this enormous amount of knowledge in the form of, uh, which was wealth. So, for example, all the animals had been domesticated thousands of years ago. You were born into the world in which there were cows and goats and, and sheep, and, and they had all been domesticated. You were born into a world in which Newton had already invented calculus, in which Euclid had already invented geometry, in which people had figured out how to navigate by the stars. That was just given to you, all that knowledge. All the roads had been built. Um, all of these things that had been created by other humans by the exercise of their minds and the and the teaching one person to another person that, excuse me, that knowledge was transferred to you uh, across time because of our capacity for teaching and social learning. And so you then live a more productive life. Yeah. You born today are endowed with all this capital, this knowledge capital, which if you had been born 10,000 years ago, you would not have had. And so, there's, yeah. And there's, yeah. and there's, you know, in all of that, there's also, I mean, there's an underlying technology uh, which essentially is is language, and of course, importantly, the written word, because that's what really I think allows well, I us wouldn't, to exponentially transfer yes, that knowledge. I wouldn't put language in the technology category because we've had language. It's unclear how long we've had language, but we've had it for a very long time, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, 
Why, and the why, word, why not, though, if you, if you don't mind me? Why, why, why wouldn't I put a technology? Well, because yeah, I why, wouldn't put vision in, in okay, our... Okay, I see. Yeah, right. language is an it's, innate it's capacity. Innate. Yeah. Yes, writing yeah. I would put as a technology. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, and writing, of course, originates thousands of years ago. And I do believe, like you suggest, that writing changed the course of human history and may even have changed the course of human evolution. There are some, there are some things that we humans have invented actually many things that we invent that change the course of our evolution. We can talk about that if you're interested, but, but, um, but I put writing, I think is in that category. So of course, writing dramatically increases the efficiency of knowledge transfer as do other technologies, you know, electronic communications and yeah. so forth. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't, I don't want to sort of belabor the point. I think the only, the, the, and I don't know enough about the, the origins of language, uh, the evolutionary origins of language. It's just, as you were describing, you know, watching, you know, for example, someone put their hand, yes. you know, in the fire. I also thought, well, you can, because we have language, you don't even have to be there to yes, witness that's right. what happened. Someone that's can right. describe it to yes, you. Yes, don't put your hand in the fire. That's you right. know, and, and, and that again is, is, uh, is kind of, it's an exponential yes. quality that we have. Yes, I, I agree with yeah. you, but I just so, want to call it a technology. Okay, got you. Yeah. Um, so what, what about, I mean, again, so you, you, the book paints a very sort of optimistic, uh, picture of, of, of humanity. And, and again, I, I'm inclined to agree that, you know, uh, that civilization simply wouldn't be possible without qualities like, like trust mm-hmm. and, and sort of the innate, uh, I suppose goodness of, of, uh, of, of people. How, how have you sort of tackled and how does the book tackle and how do you think about uh, the, the, the concept of, of what is, what is good, because that, that can be, uh, uh, perceived perhaps as, as a subjective, yes. uh, question, right? So what I consider good may not be the same yes. thing that, that you consider. Yes. How, how have you sort of come out that yes. question? Well, first of all, the, the qualities that I discuss, I think most people will have a lot of face validity. I mean, love, friendship, cooperation, teaching. I mean, do you want to argue that those are not good? Personally, no. Yes. But I, I, I know of some of people who I don't might. Know. <laughs> I mean, it would be hard to find people that yeah. would take the stand that those are not good. So they have what I would call face validity. But I hear in, towards the end of the book, and it's important to avoid something known as the naturalistic fallacy, which is just because something is natural to assume that it is you know good. So for example, death during childbirth is a natural thing, but no one would think no that was one good. No that that's good. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. So not everything that's natural is good. However, there is a, a strand in moral philosophy that attempts to, to provide an account for this. And I discuss this a little in chapter 12. And here I make, take advantage of a moral philosopher by the name of Philip Afoot. And she has a very famous sentence in her, um, in one of her books which is goes something like, in moral philosophy, I think it is helpful to think about plants. And so you're like, where is she going with this? And she's a very smart woman. And um, where she's going with it is that you can think of a plant as having good roots. And what do we mean when we say good roots, that the plant is good roots? We, we, what we mean is that the roots are fulfilling a purpose, providing nutrients to the plant. And... And she develops an argument that we can think about goodness um, as the way in which uh, entities cope with constraints that are found in the world. 
So uh, you speak of good roots that the plant needs in order to be a plant in a world in which there's rain and drought and whatever else there is. Or you could think of a clock. When you say this is a good clock, what do you mean by that? You mean that the clock is telling time properly. It's fulfilling its mission, which is to tell the time. So when I speak of good societies, I mean it in that sense. I mean that there are attributes that the society has, features that make the society able to fulfill whatever the purpose of a society is. So against those constraints, against the constraint of how do we live together, given that constraint, how does this plant grow? How does this clock work? How does a society function? What is required? And then those things are things that I will call good. And it turns out that, for example, violence is not good for a society. Yeah. A society that is full of violence doesn't remain a society. It falls apart. Whereas a society that's full of friendship and cooperation remains a society. So it, it tends or supports those claims. So that's sort of the argument that I use uh, to justify why I call these things good. Now, I need to say... That just because these qualities are good does not mean they will be put to good ends. For example, you and I might think, um, or most people would agree, that being smart is good. Or being strong is good. But you could be a strong, smart person who is a murderer. Right? You put those skills to evil purpose. So, so, you know... So you could imagine a society that had had these good qualities, but nevertheless was a kind of society that was doing bad things. Yeah. I'm just making a claim about the goodness of the qualities. Yeah, I understand. These capacities. Yeah. So in, in a sense, you're, you, it, it says nothing about the purpose to which that society may dedicate itself. I mean, it, That's right. Yeah. And also, when I speak of these qualities, I, I, I think of them as capacities. They are innate features, but they are not, they can be redirected or their expression can be suppressed. So, for example, you might have genes that um, endow you with the capacity to have kidneys that work in a certain way. Human kidneys work in particular ways. Human pancreases work in particular ways. But if I give you a, a nephrotoxin, if I give you a, a poison that, that, uh, that corrupts your kidneys, then your kidneys don't work in the way that they were intended. Some external force has prevented what would otherwise have been a natural functioning of your kidneys. Or if I starve you when you're young, you might have stunted growth. So you can have stunted societies, just like you can have stunted bodies. You can have um, physical features in the environment, for example, a lack of resources, or even cultural forces like authoritarian governments, you know, uh, like in North Korea, for example, or in East Germany during, you know, with the Stasi, that uh, interfere with the uh, natural expression of these qualities. Of these qualities. And, and so what, what are some of the, the concerns, if, if there are any, uh, that you see on, on the horizon? What, what could potentially act as a, as, as a poison or as a retarding factor that, well, that you see yeah. around you that we should, should be concerned about? I know that you... You know, the book is a, presents a hopeful message, but yes. that does beg the question. Well, I know. don't think, I think you can suppress these qualities, but only to a certain extent. And I talk about many examples of like communes, you know, communitarian movements, which try to organize themselves in a way that was antithetical to 
these qualities. Yeah, I call I, these qualities I, the I social suite. The yeah. Yeah, yeah, so these, this is a social suite, a suite of features that work together to make it possible for us to live together and have a good society. So, so there are examples where people try to renounce these or push against these, um, and, and they are doomed to failure. Um, there are, and it also depends on what time scale we're speaking about. So I don't think it's possible for us to suppress the social suite over brief historical time periods, you know, over hundreds of years, but over thousands of years, it might be possible. So, um, so there are technologies that we introduce that change the world around us and that can redirect our evolution. So, uh, so one example, uh, one example of this, the most famous example is, um, and then I'll come back to modern threats, but let's start with an ancient example. So the most famous example of this is, is, uh, the ability to digest lactose, which is the sugar in milk using an enzyme called lactase that's found in many humans. It's found in all humans when we're babies, because when we're babies, we drink our mother's milk and we need to, de- to derive nutrition from that milk. And so we need this enzyme lactase. Now, in the distant past, prior to 10,000 years ago, when you were weaned, you never needed lactase again. And so human beings no longer had the capacity to digest milk as adults because there was no milk in the environment. Once you were weaned, you never again encountered milk forever. Until between three and 9,000 years ago, human beings repeatedly domesticated animals. So we, we taught each other. Yeah. We, we, we used our culture to do something to create a technology, domesticated animals. And now all of a sudden in our environment, there's milk, which there never was before. So now those among us who happen to have mutations by chance, that allowed us to digest lactose into adulthood. So instead of the lactase gene turning off when we were weaned, it stayed on for the rest of our lives. Those people gained an advantage. They could have an additional source of food not available to everyone else and an additional source of hydration. So when there was a drought, they had liquid. They could drink the milk. So this improved their Darwinian fitness. And so the outcome of this has been that over the last few thousand years, the ability to digest lactose has spread to something like half of the global population. So something we humans created changed our environment and therefore changed the trajectory of our, of our evolution, changed our genes. Now, I think that there are a number of things that are in this category and scientists are discovering quite a few of examples like this and documenting which specific genes do this. There's a, a famous example of a people that um, live in the Pacific, they're called the sea nomads, is the sort of the kind of colloquial way of referring to these people. Um, and they live out on boats and they spend very little time on land and they, <coughs> they're the world's best divers. <coughs> they forage for food on the seafloor using very primitive technology. And, um, and these people have, um, over a few thousand years, they took to the sea, we think about 2000 years ago, have evolved a set of capacities now related to the handling of oxygen and how their spleen copes with, with being underwater for so long that are different from the rest of us. So, um, it's possible to imagine a distant future in which, let's say, if there's global warming 
and the world gets inundated with water. Well, that's, that's yeah, that's yeah, the water world. Uh, yeah, sort of, like, yes, yes. The guy develops gills. Yes, yes, and, yes. Yeah. Something like that, yes. Yeah. But, you know, we don't have to get into the realm of science fiction. We can just, we no, can imagine can things. Yeah. Right, so you, we were talking earlier about the written word. I think it's possible that when we invented, when we invented the written word, and now many more people live in environments in which there are printed words, the kinds of brains, reading is not a natural skill. Speaking is natural and language is natural, but reading is not. But I think that as we invented the printed word and we changed our environment, it could be over thousands of years, something like um, the, the domestication of animals, milk producing animals we discussed earlier. The people that are alive in a few thousand years Maybe quite different, have different capacities in their brains because they are because in a world reading, where printed. Yeah. Yes, in a world in which the printed word uh, is around. Yeah. There's certainly, and I've and I've seen this argument. I I can't remember now the uh, the author, but there is an argument uh, and, and a concern that uh, that digital technologies and the proliferation of bite-sized chunks of uh, of information is changing our reading patterns. And therefore, the concern there is that it's it's rewiring in our brains in in a way that um, will uh, have us lose the ability for deep reflective mm-hmm. thinking. I don't I don't know if you've come across anything like that. Uh, and where, I think where yes. you come out on that. Yes. Well, I think that that's probably partially true, but too the, soon. Well, it's not going to happen <laughs> to make that claim. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not going to happen over. 30 years or 100 years or even 500-year horizons. But it is possible, I would even say likely, that in 3,000 years, if this technology persists, the kinds of people that are alive will be different. So, you know, since time immemorial, the capacity to recognize other people and to know whether they are friends or enemies has been crucial. But what if now you can wear a little Google Glass and it has facial recognition software and as you walk through the world, it recognizes everyone and then talks to you and says, oh, this is Stavros and he's your friend or, you, or this is Michalis and he's your enemy yeah. and it just feeds you information. Then people who no longer have the innate capacity to identify other people or to draw, draw distinctions between friends and foes, those genes will become more tolerated and more numerous. And so as a result, over thousands of years, the introduction of this type of digital technology for example, might result in different human beings being alive, just like the milk example. So there are a number of things. You know, For example, one of the things we do in my laboratory is we study artificial intelligence and how the addition of forms of artificial intelligence into our midst in what we call hybrid systems of humans and machines changes human interactions. Let me give you a simple example. The people who manufacture digital assistants like Alexa manufacture them and sell them to you so that those machines are obedient and uh, satisfy your needs. So, for example, when you talk to such a machine, you, you don't have to be very polite. I mean, you don't have to say, excuse me, Alexa, I'm really sorry to interrupt you. Could you do me a favor, please? You know, what's oh, the weather tomorrow? The, yeah, yeah, the civility. This, yeah. None, it, it goes out the window. Out the window. Yeah. There's weather tomorrow. And the machine will answer that. Now, that might be fine and dandy uh, with respect to the sale and, and use of a machine by an individual. But now imagine that your children are using this device. And because they use this device, they learn to be rude. 
And then they go to the playground and they interact with other children. So the children are now rude to each other because of the addition of a machine in our midst in this hybrid system. It's that kind of social externality that I'm interested in when it comes to artificial intelligence. When we, when we add artificial intelligence, just like we added cows to our midst, yeah. and when we added cows to our midst, we changed the course of human evolution. When we add artificial intelligence to our midst, we're likely also going to change the course of human evolution. It's hard to forecast in what ways. But it's likely to have an effect on how we interact socially with each other. And, and so presumably the, the idea here is, is that scientific curiosity, of course, drives your desire to understand the phenomenon. Do you, are you in the, in the process of, of, of formulating any early hypotheses and, and any thoughts in terms of how, how we might address some of these externalities? Well, um, one of the arguments that I make is that as we develop, for example, artificial intelligence technologies, we, um, they are more likely to be acceptable to users and less likely to be harmful to society if they respect the social suite, if they respect these innate capacities. It's like the way we build buildings. We build buildings in a way that is conducive to our health to the best we can. So we don't build little hobbit-sized buildings that require us to hunch over and be on our hands and knees when we're in the building. We build a building with an appropriate height. Nor do we build a building with huge, tall, I mean, it's in, in magnificent buildings. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, yes, this is the wrong place. Wrong to place. Make I, know. <laughs> I know, but you know, ordinarily yeah. the kinds of buildings, our homes yeah. that we inhabit are designed in a way that takes into account our needs for warmth, our needs for uh, height, our, our visual perception and so forth. So, so, you know, we, we build buildings in keeping with our, um, with our innate biology. And so I would argue that we will need to be building, when we add these other technologies, they should, in some sense, respect our innate sociality. Yeah. Now that's, that's, that's a, that's a very good analogy, actually. And, and, you know, our, our understanding of, of architecture and the impact of space. <laughs> on on our on our psychology is also uh evolving and i think your your argument is we should you know we should perhaps accelerate you know our our uh ideas and, and understanding of how technology impacts yes. our our uh behavior and our, our yes. sociology yes i mean another example is i can give you other example of technology so we add driverless cars to our midst and usually when the people design the car they design it so that it meets the needs of the occupant. And if I sell you a car, uh, you're going to want it to deliver you from point A to point B safely and efficiently. But what if I tell you that when you add driverless cars onto a highway that has both driven cars and driverless cars, the human drivers in this hybrid system of humans and machines start driving differently. So, for example, let's say the driverless car is programmed to have a very smooth rate of flow because the occupant doesn't want it to be jerking around. Yeah. It wants a very easy flow. But what if when you program the car to drive that way, all the human drivers around it get lulled into a false sense of security and they become less attentive because the car in front of them is always moving at the same velocity. And then they veer off and go into another part of the highway that just has humans. And now they get into all these collisions with each other, killing each other because they're not attentive. So maybe in fact, we would want to program the driverless vehicle to have some stochasticity in its velocity to, to, to occasionally 
pick up speed and slow down for no reason at all. Essentially to mimic human, yes, human exactly. Uh, behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Until such time as all the cars are driverless. When they're all driverless, then they all can just move in lockstep. Um, in fact, that would be ideal. But anyway, the point is, is that as we add these technologies in these hybrid systems of artificial intelligence, machines, and humans, we need to take into account these social externalities of these machines. And we need to program them in a way that is not deleterious to our well-being. Yeah. Now, if, if history is any guide, uh, at least in the in the short run, we're notoriously bad at worrying and dealing with externalities. Why yes. is it going to be different this time or is well, it is it not going to be different no i mean i think uh you know individual humans don't care about you know the factory is causing a lot of pollution when it manufactures your your phone and uh and and those costs are borne by the people that are downwind and downstream from the factory and and you just want a cheap phone and you're not willing to pay more money to have a phone that's produced cleanly. You don't care about those costs. Someone else bears those costs. That's a classic externality. So you're right. People ordinarily don't care about externalities. But we do band together using our states to help re- address these externalities. So, for example, one of the classic examples is, is secondhand smoke. And, you know, initially it was very difficult to regulate tobacco because people felt like, well, when you smoke, you're just killing yourself. What do, what do I care if you kill yourself? What right does the state have to intervene in your behavior that might kill yourself? Well, I think the rise of awareness about the risks of secondhand smoking totally changed that calculation. Because now your smoking can kill me. And so now I want you to stop from smoking in public places. I want you to stop more in general, but I certainly want you to stop from exposing me. So the state can now intervene. So I think to the extent that any technology, when used by an individual, harms others, like the the digital assistant example we gave earlier, uh, you know, uh, I think we will see a calls for and and ethically correct um, regulation of these types of externalities. Yeah. Are you are you involved at all in in? In consulting to or advising the tech sector on on these issues, have uh, you very, had interactions? Very informally. With them? I mean, I've done. I've worked with a number of major tech companies, but not in any official capacity on this topic. Yeah. What are, What are some of the other other uh, uh, areas that you're uh, investigating? So, what what comes after Blueprint? If, well, if I have, a, a, I, have a, I have a wonderful lab with a very. Um, a very active uh, young scientists working in my laboratory. We have um, four divisions in the lab. Uh, one division is concerned with the biology of friendship and the evolutionary origins of friendship. Uh, I'm very interested in how we evolved to have, uh, you know, why we evolved to have friends, how we pick our friends. I'm interested in this division, we're in the microbiome and how uh, the microbiome might spread between people in social networks. So this is a sort of the biology of human social interaction division. <coughs> the second division of my lab uses a kind of software that we've developed called breadboard that I'm demonstrating here at wise. That's right. Uh, yeah. And that, um, and this is a software that allows us to create temporary artificial societies of real people. And then in a kind of godlike way, control 
the interactions among those people and then test, experimentally test ideas. So for example, you can create societies where the wealth is equally distributed or unequally distributed and then have the people interact and ask questions. How does the unequal distribution of wealth affect the ability of the society to work together, for example? Or you can test ideas about how does a true information and false information, how does it spread according to how people are connected? You can put them in one pattern of connections versus another pattern of connections. So you can do these experiments using breadboard. And then that same software can also be used for pedagogic purposes. Like in a classroom setting, you can use the software to demonstrate these phenomena, either, for example, by having the students themselves participate in these types of scenarios or by using online research subjects. So, so that's the second part of the lab is we do t- artificial experiments with um, uh, real people. And actually, as part of that, we also have a, a group that does work on um, artificial intelligence. So we, we're beginning to experiment with replacing some of the humans in these artificial societies with bots. So you have a group of, let's say, 20 people, and then you put three bots in their midst, and then you program the bots to see how can you change the behavior of the groups. So we have a kind of a social AI part of that. The third thing we do in the lab is we do um, field trials in the developing world of um, public health interventions. So we have a huge program with, with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, from the Tata conglomerate, from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We have, um, uh, uh, we're working in Honduras. Also, we work in India. We've previously worked in Uganda. We've worked around the world where we've mapped the networks of 30,000 people in 176 villages. And we are testing mathematical tricks that result in artificial tipping points. So if you want to create a tipping point, if you want to change the practices of all the people in this village so that they are more likely to breastfeed their babies or vaccinate their children, who do you need to target in the village so that if you persuade them to change their behavior, everyone else learns and copies them? We were talking about social learning earlier. So that's the third part of the lab. And then the fourth part of the lab is a more conventional kind of big data computational social science group where we in partnership with firms around the world, we some analyze data that might have interesting scientific questions. Now that's, I mean, that's, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. And, and I have to admit, I wasn't aware of the breadth, uh, of, of the work that you do. I mean, a couple of questions. One, uh, relating to breadboard, for example, that's, that to me seems like a very interesting example of gamification in, yes. in, in education. How, how do you see the the development of of these types of technologies? Why aren't we seeing more of that in the in the classroom? Well, <laughs> first of all, I think in the classroom, still the most important thing is the relationship of the pupil to their materials and to the teacher. So I think the interpersonal interactions, especially at the elementary level, are crucial. I I am not a fan of adding technologies into classrooms. Uh, at early ages. Uh, what we're doing, however, is kind of the social science analog of physical and biological science experimentation in classrooms. So when you learned physics, your professor in the front of the classroom set up an inclined plane and you put a weight on a, on some wheels and then you manipulated the angle theta of the, of the, um, of the, of the plank. And then you saw how fast it and how far it rolled down. Or, or you dissected in biology, you dissected a frog uh, or, uh, or a lamb brain or something or, or a cow eye. 
uh, you did a dissection to like look at the anatomy or in chemistry, you did a, uh, acid base titration, right? You know, with the two columns, you know, the, the, you know, the, the acid and the base, and then it turned blue and you added the phenolphthalein to the mixture and it turned red and blue according to whether it was an acid or a base. These are all classic experiments that teachers do in the classroom to teach students about the natural world. Well, I think it's very important to be able to do that about the social world. How are we going to teach students about the importance of friendship? How are we going to teach students about how groups cooperate? How can we demonstrate to students uh, what it means to have accurate or inaccurate information circulating in a social system? Well, using breadboard software, you can do that. You can uh, do physical, you can do actual experiments in the classroom setting that illustrate profound and fundamental features of our social world, just like for a very long time you've been able to do experiments in the classroom that illustrate profound features of our, of our physical and biological world. Yeah. So, th- so the idea here is that, that you know, you, you would want some of these technologies to be, to be more widespread. And I use the term yes. technology not necessarily to mean just software, but the idea of, yes, of having games to sort of demonstrate yes. Yes. how, you know, yes, how, how the world how, works, how the world works. Yes. And, Simplified yeah. scenarios that yeah. illustrate exactly. Yeah. Yes. Key concepts. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think that's right. And, um, or if you want to show students, you know, how does, how does gossip spread and, uh, and, and what is bad about the spread of gossip? Yeah. It's one thing to tell them. It's quite another to show them. And, and you can use this software, you know, in, in more advanced in high school and college settings or in workplace settings, you know, as part of workplace education, for example, when, when you're trying to educate workers at a major firm at an industrial firm, how should we work together in order to produce widgets in order to do our jobs? You can take them into a classroom and show them, uh, a functional teams and dysfunctional teams. And then they have that experience and they see uh, what does it mean to work together in optimally and suboptimally. And equally to understand what are the causes of, the, of dysfunction. Yes. As well. That's right. So that you can, you can guard against them. That's right. That's exactly uh, right. Nicholas, the final question I have, and this relates to the, to the, the nudge example that you gave with, uh, with the work that you do in, in, uh, in the development world. You know, that it's obviously, and again, you're, you know, you're targeting, uh, you know, positive behaviors, you know, uh, breastfeeding and vaccination, and vaccination you know, um, how, how do you, how do you, I mean, do you worry that these technologies, you know, in the wrong hands could, yes, you know, and, and how, how do you start, you know, how do you think about these, these issues? Yes. I'm very worried about this. And, and, um, I think some of our ideas have already been weaponized. Um, uh, for example, against fair elections around the world have been weaponized by some countries. I think, um, I think, but it's like any technology is a dual use. You know, a, a drug can be a poison. Uh, a gun can be used to hunt or to kill people. You can develop nuclear energy to create power or nuclear weapons. So any technology is a dual use technology. And that's been the case ever since we humans started making you rocks. Know, yes. <laughs> yeah. Arrowheads. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's right. right. Yeah. Cause you could, so, could use yeah. the axe as a tool or you could a, use it as a weapon, bash someone over yes. the head with it. Yeah. Exactly. So, so yes. Yeah. So the stuff we're doing also has this purpose. You know, we are of course applying it to try to, as you said, increase breastfeeding in developing world villages, but 
You could use the same technology to encourage people to buy useless products that they don't need and waste their money. Yeah. Or you could use it to, you know, for example, we're developing ways to make groups more cooperative. You could use it to make groups less cooperative. And that might not be a good thing in some situations. So um, I've written a little bit about this, about the sort of the ethics of exploiting networks in a prior book of mine called Connected. Um, but I don't touch on that too much in Blueprint, which is a kind of bigger, grander, happier yeah. uh, discussion <laughs> yeah. of the origins of human goodness. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, maybe the answer is is uh, is to be found in Blueprint. One is that, that you know, again, the hope is that the that suite that you that you so eloquently uh, write and speak about is is going to be you know assert itself uh, eventually, uh, but also the, the the role that education can play yes in at least making us aware of you know how these you know how these methods approaches and technologies work and therefore we're better able to perhaps inoculate ourselves yes. against against yes. misuse yes yeah. I would agree well. Uh, Nicholas, I think we've we've come up to uh, thank to our time here. It's it's been great having you on uh, on Wise Words, and thank you for uh, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Stavros.